Someone has well said that the Bible is a book that could not have been written merely by men if they would, and it would not have been written by men if they could. In other words, what the Bible has to say is so profound that man could not have come up with it on his own, and it is so indicting that man would not have written it if he could. For example, it would be impossible for people on their own to write about all the issues that are addressed in the Bible and to address those issues with such precision, accuracy, and unity. The Bible was written by approximately 40 different human authors over a period of 1,600 years, three different languages, several continents, yet with remarkable unity. On the other hand, if people could have come up with all the information on their own, they would not have written the many passages in the Bible that say we are all sinners who deserve the wrath of God and we can do absolutely nothing to help ourselves. You see, the Bible clearly describes us as sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, and by practice. We are dead in trespasses and sins, which means there is nothing we can do about our situation. We are helpless and we are hopeless in and of ourselves. Only God himself can do something about our predicament. Only the grace of God can rescue us, not our own works, our own goodness, or our own deeds. That message sets apart the Bible as being unique among all other religious books. Beloved, that is not an overstatement. That message sets apart the Bible as being unique in comparison with all other religious books on this planet. In all other religions, man can do something about his dilemma. There is a system or a set of works that can help you achieve your salvation. That is not the message of biblical Christianity. Which is one of the reasons why I agree that the Bible is a book that could not have been written merely by men if they would. And it would not have been written by men if they could. The message of the Word of God is clear. That our salvation rests solely and exclusively on our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and not on anything in ourselves. That truth is reaffirmed in our text this morning found in 1 John chapter 5. Let's turn there together if you are not already there. Over near the end of the New Testament, the little epistle titled 1 John. I invite you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 13 of chapter 5, though our text will consist only of verses 10 through 13, having looked at the other verses already. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. 
For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now the reason why I had us back up to verse 1 to begin our reading, even though we are already covered verses 1 through 9, is because this section that I just read is a unit and it culminates in verse 13. Before we dig into the details of it, let me give you the big picture and explain how it all fits together. In the, in the early verses of this chapter, the Apostle John explained that overcomers, victors, winners, are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 1 says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And verse 5 says, who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Overcomers, then, victors, winners, are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The term Christ is a reference to the promised Messiah of Hebrew Scripture, and the phrase Son of God is a title of deity. So John describes overcomers, victors, winners, as those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and believe that he is God in human flesh. That's what we believe as Christians. That is foundational. That is is so at the core of what we believe. Next, John answers the question, what is the evidence to back up our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? What is the evidence? To answer that question, John sets forth two kinds of evidence, or two categories of witness. External witness and internal witness. Another way to say it would be to say objective witness and subjective witness. Verses 6 through 9 set forth external objective witness, and verse 10 mentions the internal subjective witness. This is clearly John's theme here in in verses 6 through 12 because he uses some form of the word witness or testimony nine times in these verses. It's repeated for emphasis so we don't miss it, so that we get it. He is talking about witness. He is talking about testimony. He is talking about evidence. 
Contrary to popular opinion, God does not expect us to have blind faith. You've maybe heard that. Maybe you've even inaccurately said that. Well, it's just all about blind faith. No, it's not about blind faith. Our faith is based on facts. Our faith is based on historical certainties. Our faith is based on truth. We are called to believe the truth as it is factually and historically set forth in Scripture. That's what John is getting at in verses 6 through 9. To really appreciate those verses, you need to picture in your mind a courtroom scene. John calls three witnesses to the stand to testify that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Christ, the Son of God. But these three witnesses are not just John's witnesses, as he says says in verse 9. These are God's witnesses. So, verses 6 through 9 describe God's three witnesses that compel us to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Then, verses 10 through 12 describe the results of believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. That is followed by verse 13, which discusses our assurance that comes by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's how this section fits together as a unit. With that in mind, let's jump into our consideration of what the Holy Spirit guided John to write as he continues to build his case. And we pick it up this morning in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. John has been discussing and describing external objective witnesses in verses 6 through 9. He specifically mentioned three. The Holy Spirit, the baptism of Jesus, and the death of Jesus. Those are the objective witnesses that proclaimed Jesus is who he claimed to be. And we covered those in detail in the last message in the series. Now in this first phrase in verse 10... John adds this internal subjective witness. He says, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. John began with the external objective witnesses because that is the starting point. Now think about this with me. We we can't begin with our own subjective thoughts and feelings. We must begin with facts. We must begin with truth. Thoughts or feelings don't lead the way, but when those thoughts and feelings are based on objective truths, they have a place. So John doesn't hesitate to add this internal subjective witness, and he isn't the only writer to do this. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 8. Back up there with me, let's compare how Paul does it with how John does it. Romans chapter (coughs) 8. I want to focus on verse 16, but we need to get a running start by beginning in verse 15. As you're turning to Romans 8, let me just give you the big picture. This chapter is all about the privilege that is ours to be children of God. That's the theme. That is the focus. Notice how Paul says it beginning in verse 15. 
He says, well, the end of verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. These are children of God. That's his theme. That's what he's talking about. What does it mean to be a child of God? Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Here Paul reminds us, here in this verse, that under our old master, we cowered in fear. But that's not the way we relate to our new master because our new master is actually, through faith in Jesus, is our heavenly father. So he says, rather than cowering in fear, we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic term for father, and it's a term of endearment. This is the term children use to address their father. It would be like our English word daddy or papa. It was a child's word, and it it, it expressed endearment. And here in this verse, Paul says, that's the way we relate to God. Now, beloved, think about what he's saying here. We don't cower in fear when we approach God. He is our loving, heavenly Father. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't expect chastening when we are rebellious or are sinning. Because the Scripture is clear that God does chasten His children for our benefit, out of love. When we are going our own way and doing our own thing, then we ought to fear the chastening that God will give, but it's chastening from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father. I can relate to this. I can really relate to what Paul is describing here. When I was growing up, there was no doubt in my mind whatsoever that my dad loved me. I I did not cower in fear around him. I enjoyed being with him. However, when I had done something in direct disobedience to what he said, I was afraid. I was afraid of the consequences. Unfortunately, not all of you had that kind of proper and balanced relationship with your earthly father. I'm sure there are many of you who always had to fear your father. That's tragic, but it's a reality in our sin-cursed world, which is why Paul says, listen, we don't have any reason to fear our new master. We can even call him Abba, Father. This was something virtually unheard of for the Old Testament Jew in his relationship to God. Virtually foreign. The Old Testament Jew referred to God as his master, as his Lord, Adonai. And while that's also true of us, we primarily refer to God as our Father. You will remember that this is the way Jesus taught us to pray. When his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, pray in this manner. Here's how you ought to pray. Not saying we have to use these exact words, but in this manner, therefore pray, our Father who is in heaven. That's the way Jesus said we should pray. Open by saying, our Father in heaven. When we pray that way, we are affirming our union with the Lord Jesus because that's the way he prayed. He addressed God as Holy Father, as Righteous Father, and Abba Father. Because we are children of God, we can address him that way. 
Think about it, Christian. You are a child of God. That's what verse 15 is saying. You are a child of God. Have you grown so used to that idea that it no longer thrills you? We are God's children if we have placed faith in Jesus Christ. There is no greater privilege in the universe, no greater position in the universe. And that leads Paul to his next thought in verse 16. He says, he said at the end of verse 15, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the subjective side of our assurance of salvation. There is an objective side, but Paul doesn't deal with that here. John dealt with it in 1 John 5. He calls forth these objective external witnesses. And there are other passages that, that describe our salvation that way. The objective side of assurance of salvation is found in various passages that describe for us what a true Christian is. For example, 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4 say, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That verse is, or those two verses are telling us, as we examine our lives in light of what we see God has done, it can give us assurance that we have been transformed by the Lord and we are his children. That's more, ex- that's more external. That's objective. But this verse, verse 16, is talking about the subjective side of our assurance of salvation. This verse says God's Holy Spirit within gives us assurance that we belong to Him. Under Roman law, seven witnesses were required to validate an adoption. This is what Paul is talking about here. Adoption. Our adoption into uh, our privileged position as, as full-grown children of God. Under Roman law, seven witnesses were required. But Paul is basically saying, listen, we only need one witness. And that witness is the Holy Spirit of God Himself. God's, wit- God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the ways He does this is by producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives which demonstrates our authenticity. As we see the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, etc., that validates our authenticity. But this verse, this verse seems to be going beyond that to talk about the Spirit Himself. It's not just His work in us that bears witness. He Himself bears witness. So as you look at these two verses, verses 15 and 16 in Romans 8, you could describe them this way. Verse 15 is a description of us saying we love God because we cry out, Abba, Father. We love Him. And verse 16 is a description of God saying He loves us as His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This whole passage here in Romans 8 is a beautiful description of our family relationship with God as children. Much of the book of Romans, as you probably know, is written in legal and technical wording to emphasize what God has done for us legally, what He has done for us positionally. But this section 
is written to describe what God has done for us relationally. This is not merely what He has done for us legally, technically. It's what He has done for us personally. It's a beautiful description of our family relationship as children of God. And one of the aspects of that relationship is the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the same thing that John mentions in our text in 1 John chapter 5. Let's go back there to our text in 1 John 5. So in the first part of verse 10, John mentions the internal subjective witness. But then he states the result when someone refuses to believe the external objective witnesses God has given. Notice what he says at the end of verse 10. He says, He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. That is a bold statement. Strong statement. A firm statement. John doesn't soft pedal the fact. The person who refuses to believe God's witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is basically calling God a liar. And remember that when John uses the word believe here throughout his letter, he is not talking about mere mental assent. He is, talking about, he is not talking about intellectual acknowledgement. A person doesn't really believe in the Lord Jesus if that person hasn't yielded his or her life and will to the Lord Jesus. James 2.19 tells us the demons believe. They know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They called him that many times when he was here on the earth, in his earthly ministry, when he would come upon demon-possessed people. The demons know that, but the demons have not repented and submitted to Jesus to do his will. That kind of belief is not saving faith. So when John talks about believing the testimony that God has given of his Son, he is not talking about mere intellectual assent. He is talking about a life-changing belief. After all, saving faith is not merely an intellectual process. It's entering into an eternal relationship. And that's why John adds the next verse, verse 11. He says, And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. There are two very important, two extremely important truths that we need to emphasize from this verse. So make sure you grab both of these. First of all, whenever you see the phrase eternal life in Scripture, or everlasting life, it's, it's the same Greek word, sometimes translated everlasting, sometimes eternal, it's, it's the same word. Whenever you see that phrase in Scripture, train your mind to think of more than just duration of life. The phrase eternal life does contain the idea of never-ending, which is why it's sometimes translated everlasting. But there is more to it than just that. Eternal life is a relationship with the Father and the Son. So the primary emphasis of the phrase is not on duration of life, but rather on quality of life or kind of life. Let me, let me explain this further. All people, think about this, all people will exist somewhere forever. But the question is, in what condition? 
Or in what relationship will they spend eternity? So in in one sense of the term, all people are everlasting. But eternal life is more than just eternal existence. Eternal life is a quality of life. It's It's a kind of life. Only God is eternal. Therefore, when we receive eternal life, we receive the very life of God. When we come to Jesus, He gives us a whole new kind of life, a whole new quality of life. That's why the Bible can say that when we turn to the Lord Jesus, we have eternal life. It doesn't say we shall have it, we shall get it, we will get it. No, it says we have it. Beloved, hear me when I say this. If you know Jesus personally and intimately as your Lord and Savior, then you don't have to wait for eternal life. You're not waiting for eternal life. If you really know God, if you really know the Lord Jesus, you have the very life of God in your soul. Let me say it this way to try to make the point. Do you realize that if you are a Christian, then physical death will be less of an event for you than your salvation was? Think about that. Physical death will be less of an event for you than your salvation was. You see, when you became a Christian, the Bible says you were delivered out of the spiritual death of sin and you received eternal life. That is a radical change, a radical transformation. Physical death, on the other hand, just releases you from your flesh so the eternal life of God can be given full expression. Death for the Christian isn't as big of a change as conversion is. Because at conversion, we are given eternal life, the very life of God. That's the first important truth in this verse that we make sure that we understand, that we need to make sure we grab hold of. The second one is similar. It's along the same lines, but it's a little different emphasis. And it's found in the little word in that appears right near the end of this verse. John says, this life, this eternal life, is in His Son. In His Son. That little expression, beloved, that little phrase, is one of the most common ways for writers of the New Testament to describe what it means to be a Christian. You see, there are a number of ways to describe Christians. We are Followers of Christ, that's a valid way to describe Christians. We are followers of Christ. We are believers in Christ. We are children of God. We are called saints. We are called sheep. We are called disciples. We are called by many names or titles. All of those terms or phrases are a description of what it means to be a Christian. Yes, but one of the favorites of the New Testament, one of the favorites of the New Testament writers is the phrase, in Christ or in Him. In fact, the Apostle Paul alone, not counting the other writers of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul alone uses that phrase 132 times in his letters. In Christ. In Him. That word, in, could be rendered by virtue of union with. And that's the way John is using the phrase here in verse 11. By virtue of union with. Eternal life is by virtue of union with God's Son. That's the idea. 
eternal life comes to us by virtue of our union with God's Son. It's another way for John to emphasize that being a Christian is not a religion. It is not at all a religion. It is a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Him, and He is in us because it is a union relationship. Therefore, John can make the following statement, verse 12. He who has the Son of God has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That verse is so simple and yet so profound. If you want to know if you have eternal life, the most the most significant issue you will ever face. If you want to know if you have eternal life, then ask yourself the simple question, do I have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in my life? Do I have a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the issue. Do you have the Son? If you do, this verse says, you have eternal life. If you don't, then you don't have eternal life. It's that basic. As I said, it's so simple, and yet it is so utterly profound. If you have a living relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, then you already have eternal life in your soul. You have the very life of God beating in your heart. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, then you don't have eternal life no matter what you have done or are trying to do to achieve it. You can't earn it, you can't merit it, you can't buy it, you can't achieve it. Eternal life is a gift, and it comes by virtue of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And because that is the means or the basis for us having eternal life, we can know with absolute certainty that we have it. We don't have to wait and see. So John culminates what he's been building to. He climaxes with this statement in verse 13. He says, These things, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The phrase, these things, refers to everything John has said in his letter and especially these things right here at the end. The Holy Spirit of God guided John to write this letter so that we can have absolute assurance of salvation. Beloved, we can know. God wants us to know. It is not prideful to claim to know, contrary to what some people say. There are those who say that it's the height of pride and presumption to say that you know you are saved and are going to heaven. Listen, whenever people say that, it is a sure sign that they don't understand the gospel. Mark it well. It's a sure sign that they believe that salvation depends on our works and our goodness in some measure. That is why they say it's the height of pride and presumption to say that you know you are saved and are going to heaven. However, Because salvation does not depend on our works. It does not depend on our goodness. It is not arrogant to claim that you know you are saved. It's all based on God's grace and God's promise. That's how we can know. 
Certainty and humility do not exclude one another. Did you catch that? Certainty and humility do not exclude one another. In John 5.24, Jesus gave the following promise. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Don't miss how Jesus worded that promise. He says, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. It has already happened. Already. We don't have to wait and see. We don't have to hope that we will be okay in the day of judgment. What a miserable way to live life. And yet so many people live that way. Saying, I hope I'm going to be okay. I'm not sure. I'm just hoping I'll be fine. According to Jesus, we won't even come into judgment. Because we have already passed from death into life. The Apostle John recorded that statement of Jesus in his gospel. In John 5, 24. Because John wanted to make sure that we understand that we can have absolute assurance. Beloved, that is not presumptuous. What is presumptuous is to doubt God's promise or to question God's promise. John does not encourage us to be presumptuous. However, he does encourage us to be confident in God's word, God's promise. It's fascinating to compare John's gospel with this letter. When you, when you look at what John emphasized in his writings, two things really stand out. It's very clear. Number one, John wanted to make sure that his readers, whether in the first century or us to this day, John wanted to make sure that his readers understand how to have eternal life. That's why he wrote his gospel, the gospel of John. According to John 20, 31, he specifically tells us there that he wrote his gospel to tell us how to have eternal life. That was one of the two things he emphasized most in his writing. The second is his emphasis on assurance. And that is the focus of his letter, this letter that we have been studying for many weeks now. Both writings, the Gospel of John and 1 John, tell us how to have eternal life. And both writings tell us how to have assurance. But they each have their own distinct emphasis. The emphasis of the Gospel of John is on how to have eternal life. And the emphasis on 1 John is on how to have assurance of eternal life. That is why John repeatedly presented the three marks of a true Christian throughout this letter. He explains that a true Christian has a proper view of Christ, that is, a proper doctrine of Christ, a proper theology of Christ. A, a true Christian has, secondly, a heart of obedience, not perfection, but the right direction. And thirdly, a true Christian has a love for other Christians, a love for the people of God. Those are the three marks of a true child of God, and John has repeated them throughout this letter. Those character traits in our lives demonstrate that we have experienced the saving grace of God. So that's one way to look at the topic of assurance. By God's grace, do you see those things in your life? Do you see in your life a proper view of, proper perspective of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he came to do? Do you see a heart that wants to and is inclined toward obedience 
Do you see a heart that loves the people of God? Those are very specific examples that John gives. If you see those things in your life, that should give you confidence that God has saved you. Another way to look at it is to simply look at verse 12, where we read, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So read a verse like that and ask yourself this question. Do you have the Son of God in your life? Do you know Him personally as your own Lord and Savior? If so, you have eternal life and you can have the assurance that you have it. You can know. That is, that is the message of 1 John. If you had to summarize all of 1 John, and there are so many things said throughout this letter, but if you had to summarize it or synthesize it or boil it down to three words, I would say that the best three-word title for the entire letter of 1 John is You Can Know. You can know. So I ask you this morning, do you know? Do you know with absolute assurance? You can know. You should know. You should not enter eternity uncertain. You should not enter eternity with question marks. You should not approach death with any doubt in your mind whatsoever. Don't step into eternity hoping that you are okay. Surrender your life to Christ so you come to know Him personally. And when you genuinely come to know Him, you can know that you have eternal life. And that's what John wants us to understand. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. And that is the the climax to which this chapter builds all the way beginning from chapter 5, verse 1, to verse 13, where we read these things. I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I can't help but wonder if every person in this room really knows. Do you really know? Settle that question. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes here at the end of the service, here at the end of the message, nothing is more important than what we talked about this morning. Having eternal life and having the assurance of eternal life. In a sense, you could say that's two sides of the same coin. Having eternal life and the flip side, having the assurance that you have eternal life. So I ask you, don't think about your neighbor, your friend, someone sitting nearby. I ask you, do you know? Do you really know? Remember, this is not pride. This is not presumption. This is believing what God has said. Understanding what God has said, embracing it, and believing it. Do you know you have eternal life? If you don't know that, if there's any doubt in your mind whatsoever, any question, resolve the issue. Surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, this moment, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. Tell Him you want to know Him. You want to have a relationship with Him. You want to be in Him. 
And when you are in him, you have eternal life by virtue of that union relationship. And based on that, not based on your own works, your own achievements, your own goodness, based on that, you can have complete and absolute confidence. I urge you, don't leave here this morning with doubts. Don't leave here this morning with uncertainty. You can know. You can know. Father, what a precious, precious gift is assurance. Certainly eternal life is a precious gift. But even beyond that, the assurance of eternal life is a priceless commodity. Oh, how torturous it is to go through life with doubts, with questions, with uncertainties. How that plagues the soul. How that grieves the heart. So you want us to know. That's what you tell us in your word. You want us to know. It's not merely something that we long for, having assurance and having confidence. It's what you want for us as your people. So thank you that you have given us your word so that we can know the Lord Jesus. Not merely know about him, but know him personally. And by virtue of knowing him, we can know we have eternal life. So, Father, I pray for every person in this room that we would leave here this morning with absolute, complete, certain confidence that we belong to you through faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And if there are those here present who do not know you, who do not know your Son, may they at least understand very clearly what the issue is, so they don't leave here with any questions about what it means to be a child of yours, what it means to be a Christian. And of course, our prayer is that you would draw them into that relationship. And Father, it's very likely that there are some here this morning who do belong to you, but for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons, there are doubts in their mind. They, they wonder, maybe they haven't clearly understood how simple and yet how profound the gospel is. It's not uncommon at all, as you, as you know, Father, it's not uncommon at all for your children to have these insecurities and these doubts, which is why you tell us that you want us to know. I pray your Holy Spirit would minister to them so that they would not continue to be plagued by doubts of salvation. May they be able to leave here with assurance, confidence, and what you have said in your word. So use the truth to which we've been exposed this morning, this, this profoundly powerful text. Use it in our lives to accomplish your purposes in our hearts as we pray these things together in the priceless and precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.